0: Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Chapter 24 begins, like I said, what is called the Olivet Discourse and continues into chapter 25. In this chapter, Jesus is going to predict the future. The Lord Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. Which means also the sacking and destruction of Jerusalem. Which is going to experience profound desolations. The disciples want to know when this will happen. And what will be the sign that will precede these events in verse 3. In breath taking fashion. Jesus is going to speak of a future time of what will be unbearable tribulation, apostasy, the rise of false prophets in verses 4 and 5 and 11, false messiahs leading people astray. It's going to be a time of anarchy in verses 6 through 8 apathy in verses 12 through 13, affliction in verses 9 and 10, but it's also going to be a momentous time of unprecedented accomplishment as the gospel is going to be preached in all of the nations in verse 14. The chapter has been a subject of profound controversy and gross misinterpretation. There are three primary views concerning this Olivet discourse. The first is that chapter 24 describes both the destruction of Jerusalem and the last days before the return of Christ. Number two, the first part of the prophecy deals only with the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 4 through 35. And the last part transitions to the return of Christ in chapter 24, verses 36 through 51. The third view is that all of chapter 24 gives a prediction only of the destruction of Jerusalem, but really says nothing about the return of Christ. The first view seems to make the most sense. In the light of the facts, and in light of the evidence, and in light of the sum and the substance of the revelation that's given in the New Testament. In order to avoid misinterpretation, we're going to have to apply certain biblical principles of interpretation to the text. Oddly enough, we are going to have to put on our thinking caps... We are going to have to ask questions like, who was the original audience? Who is Jesus speaking to? We're going to have to resist the temptation to read into the text more than is there. But we also have to consider what the text actually says. Not only in its context, but in light of the greater revelation, obviously, that's given also in Mark and Luke and John. But we aren't limited to those texts. We can go all the way back to Genesis and we get to go forward all the way in the book of Revelation. So, again, there are three major divisions to the discourse or the sermon. I'm going to suggest to you that the first is largely addressed to the Jew and to the Jewish people. in verses 24 in chapter 24, verses 1 through 44. Now even though he's speaking to his disciples, there are going to be events that unfold that largely apply to the future of the Jewish people. The second is addressed to the professing church. We see this happening to the wise and faithful servants who find themselves in the master servants at the coming of Christ in chapter 24, verse 45. So we see this transition of believers, Christ followers, Jesus lovers, all the way into chapter 25, verse 30. Finally, we see God's dealings with the Gentiles, that is, goim, the nation. Or in Greek, the ethnos. These are the sum and the substance of the people groups on the planet earth in chapter 25 verses 31 through 46. Paul hints at this collection of people groups in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 32. When he writes, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. So, it wasn't unusual for Paul to speak of the Jews, the Greeks, that means the people who weren't Jewish, the the Gentiles, and the church. And so we begin with the destruction of Jerusalem. Look what it says in verse one. Then Jesus went out from where? The temple. He departs from the temple. Remember the discussion, the questions that have been asked and answered in chapter 23. He departs from the temple and his disciples come up to show him the buildings of the temple or the temple proper. The temple proper was a 15-acre complex that was that consisted of a group of buildings. The first was the stoa. There was... A court for Gentiles, a court for women, a court for men, and a court for priests. There was the temple itself. And so there's groupings of buildings. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Pay careful attention to those words. Assuredly. I say to you, we've often made reference to that word, assuredly. It means what I'm about to say is true. That doesn't mean that what he said up to this point is not true, but he's drawing special attention to the fact so that you will not make the mistake of wondering whether or not you can equivocate. He says, not one stone will be left upon another. What Jesus says. Let me just be blunt. What Jesus says. Happens. When Jesus says. There are going to be future signs. There are going to be future signs. When Jesus says. The temple is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. When he says. That the city. That rejects truth. Refuses truth. And will receive judgment, they will receive judgment. The Lord Jesus leaves that which he abandons to judgment. Schofield said that. What the Lord Jesus leaves, that which he abandons to judgment. These are sober words. They're supposed to not so much frighten you, but rather remind you that when Jesus leaves a particular place, that means that place is subject to judgment. And so when at the beginning of the verse, when it says he's leaving the temple, remember what I've already said to you. He's not going to return to the temple. The only time he's going to return is to be in the edifice right next door, which is the Antonine Fortress, in order to face judgment. In chapter 23, verses 37 through 38, Jesus, remember, said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He pronounces judgment on the city and then on the temple. The destruction and the signs occur, listen carefully, not simply because Jesus says so, but because of the human heart hardened against sin, refusing mercy and grace. The destruction of the temple was God's punishment for the Jews turning away from God and God's Messiah. Jeremiah had earlier predicted judgment for Solomon And his temple. In Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 11 where it says. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins. A haunt for jackals. This isn't the first time the city would receive a pronouncement of guilt and judgment. There are images in Ezekiel of the glory going up from the temple in Ezekiel chapter nine, verse three, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse four, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23. In the invisible spiritual realm, there is this sense in which the glory of God, the very presence of God leaves. It says, quote, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain. Which mountain? The very mountain that Jesus is speaking from, the Mount of Olives. We know that because it says, right, there, which is on the east side of the city. Ezekiel sees from the perspective of the Mount of Olives, the glory departing and the departure of the divine glory. Remember is the visible symbol of God's presence from the temple. One day the visible glory will return. But not yet. But to this very day, observant Jewish people hug close to the Western Wall because they believe that the physical presence of God dwells in that city and at that place. Once again, the disciples don't seem to understand or apply the words of Jesus to the actions of Jesus, which is taking place right before them. Think about what's happening. The disciples point to the city, and they point to the temple proper, and they say, look at these buildings, aren't they magnificent? And Jesus is saying to them, Jerusalem's going to fall. The temple's going to be destroyed. But how could something so lovely, so costly, be destined for judgment and destruction? Imagine if we were at the Twin Towers on September 9th or September 10th, and someone said, and by the way, the Twin Tower complex is about 15 acres, which is about the same size as the precinct of Jerusalem's Temple Mount. Imagine on September 9th or September 10th, someone looked at the two twin towers and said, in a single day, within hours, both of these towers will fall and they will be utterly destroyed. People would have said, that's absurd. Even if you planned right now for this to happen, you couldn't pull it off. It just couldn't happen. It happened on Tuesday, September 11th. On Sunday... The following Sunday, I was there getting ready to go onto the place where the Twin Towers stood, and it reeked of stench, and death, and trash, and gasoline, and my first impression was, how could something so beautiful, so expensive, become so worthless? So quickly, and that's part of the point that Jesus is making. In Mark's gospel, in chapter thirteen, we read: Then, as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, "Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here." The temple was a massive complex of buildings. Connie, you could put our our, our picture up there. It was a massive complex of buildings, including. Ritual baths, steps, the stoa. The stoa is the place where the money changers were, when they would exchange goods and services and, and evaluate the animals. Um, there was also courts for Gentiles, women, men, priests. And then there was the massive temple proper. Outside the courts were large porches or porticos. Solomon's porch was 1,562 feet long, and the royal porch was decorated with 160 columns stretching 921 feet. The marble pillars were 40 feet high, and they were carved out of a single slab. And I've walked along the length of the retaining wall, which was built by Herod, which contains stones that are 40 to 60 tons each. And so it makes perfect sense that people would be absolutely in awe over these buildings because it was awe-inspiring. No one knows for sure what the temple and the buildings exactly look like, but reconstructions provide us some very good archaeological guesses. Even in antiquity, we understand that you could see the top of the golden dome of the temple from miles away as the sun would reflect off of its surface. But remember, 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 Jesus sees the gleaming stones, and Jesus sees the massive buildings, and Jesus sees something else. He sees a symbol of emptiness without God, without the presence of God, without the favor of God. Some of you have seen magnificent edifices. Some of you in England may have seen St. Paul's Cathedral. Or maybe it, you've been in Jackson Square and in New Orleans and you've seen St. Patrick's Cathedral. You've seen these beautiful, beautiful buildings with beautiful st- spires and, and stonework. But understand something. That a building is simply a building unless that building is used for the praise and the honor and the glory and the majesty of God. Our little building, it used to be in Albertsons. There's 18 inch cement block that's made up of this little square where we meet. It's nothing really, but the thing that makes it important, the thing that makes the building special, isn't the building. It's the moment you walk into the building. It's the moment you enter the building. And when you enter the building and you bring Jesus in your heart and the grace and the mercy of God in your heart and the praises of God in your heart and then this simple, what used to be a grocery store, becomes a sanctuary. For so many people, They want the symbol and they reject the substance. Jesus plainly predicts the destruction of the temple. Not one stone will be left upon the other which will not be thrown down. Jesus peers into the future when temple worship ceases. When the sacrifices ceases. And those who have grown up in the church, you may have experienced some sense of the sanctity of the church. Maybe you grew up in a religious tradition where you would walk into the church and you would say... Maybe your mother and father would say, shh, "Shh, you're in church. Be quiet. This is a sacred place. This is a holy place." But the sacredness and the sanctity of the place is based on the presence of God, and sometimes we lose sight. We we. We do not understand just how the Jewish person would have felt about this temple and this place and the sanctity of this temple and the sanctity of this place, but it's going to disappear. By the way, the second temple had its beginnings during the time of Ezra. After the exiled Jews returned to Jerusalem in Ezra chapter 6 verse 14, the temple was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC and then rebuilt by the Maccabees a little bit later. Major renovations to the temple mount and the temple began under Herod the Great in 20 BC. He built a retaining wall and then literally put a table on top of the mountain and then began Began this incredible building project, which did not end until 64 AD. That's when the last stone was put in the last place. Exactly six years later, it would be utterly, completely, thoroughly destroyed by Titus and Vespasian. In 70 AD. Truth, there is no such thing as a sacred place that rejects the holiness of God and the ministry of Jesus. If you look at a church and you go, oh, look at that, that's a church. But if it's a church that rejects God and rejects Christ and rejects the gospel, There's nothing sacred about that space. The only thing that is sacred is that place where God can reveal his glory. Remember, for the Jew, the temple represented the real presence of God. And Jesus claimed to be the Lord of the temple. Jesus insisted on its purity. And now Jesus predicts its destruction And it would seem, again, that the destruction literally comes to pass. But as we make our way into the chapter, there are things that did not happen when Vespasian and Titus came and they destroyed the the city. Which has led some people to wonder and speculate whether or not another temple will be built, a temple in the future. And that that temple also will be surrounded. And that temple will also be destroyed. Now in verse 3, look what it says. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? The Mount of Olives is just east of Jerusalem. If you imagine you're facing Jerusalem, there's a deep valley called the Kidron. The Kidron Valley was a steep precipice. And so the Temple Mount is separated from the Mount of Olives it's not the Grand Canyon, but in the ancient days before the destruction of the temple, it was a gigantic chasm. And Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, it gives a panoramic view of the Temple Mount. You can see the, the incredible uh, platform. And it's from, this temple, or it's from this Mount of Olives that the disciples ask three questions. Number one... When will the temple be destroyed? Number two, what is the sign of Christ's coming? Number three, what is the sign of the end of the age? The answer to the first question isn't given in Matthew's gospel. It's given in Luke's gospel. Chapter 21, verse 20. You might want to turn there because... In Luke's gospel, chapter 21, verse 20, listen to what Jesus says. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Pause for a moment. The last time we were together, remember I talked with you about what that word desolation means. It means more than impoverished. It means more than just simply to be without resources. In this context, it's the desolation, which means no resources from God. Remember, for the person who rejects God and rejects Christ and rejects the gospel, they're only left with their own resources. And so when he says, then know that it's desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written must be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Why? Because they're Jewish women and they're pregnant and they're nursing babies. And when you're running for your life, it's almost impossible to preserve and to protect your children. And again, you must of necessity not be able to do the observances which observant Jews were required to do. And then in verse 24, and they will, look what it says, fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that's exactly what happened. A million Jews killed. Another million enslaved. Titus and Vespasian would salt the top of the Temple Mount and utterly and completely destroy it. It wouldn't be until the time of Hadrian, that they would come and they would build yet another temple, a a temple to the god Zeus and rename the city Aelia Capitolina. So when will the city be destroyed? It says in Luke 21, 20, it's going to be destroyed and occupied by the Gentiles. In short order, verses 21 and twenty. 20 and 21. Survivors are going to flee the city. There's going to be a disaster. 22-23. God's judgment descends on one of the most severe judgments to fall upon the city. Then a description of death as people are killed and enslaved. Doom as strange signs begin to appear in heaven in verse 25. Distress in verse 26. Even the most courageous hearts melt with fear and delight, verses 27 and 28, as Christ returns on the clouds with power and glory. Problem? Jesus didn't return on the clouds with power and glory in 70 AD. Which has caused some people to think there was a historical destruction that is indisputable. But there seems to be a hint that another temple will be built and another temple will be destroyed on that same platform. You know why this is interesting? Because there are many Christians who say, yeah, I can't wait for the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. But when you make that statement, you're, you're uttering actually a blasphemy. And the reason why you're uttering a blasphemy is because the temple isn't a tribute to God and the glory of God, even if the Jew rebuilds it, because once the temple is rebuilt, what it is, it's a concession that Jesus is not the sacrifice and that Jesus is not the Lord. It is the idea that there is a sacrifice that will somehow be acceptable to God that isn't Jesus the Lord, and that just simply is not true. So when will the temple be destroyed? When Jesus is saying these words, it will be utterly and completely destroyed by 70 AD. When will the temple be destroyed? If the Bible is correct, and I think that it is, a temple will be rebuilt on the Temple Mount. That temple, too, will also experience, I suspect, destruction. What will the sign of the coming be? The second part of the question is a reference to the coming of the Messiah's reign in God's kingdom. In the disciples' mind, you have to understand something. The moment that the disciples say, when is the destruction going to take place? When is the Messiah going to come? When are we going to enter into the absolute end of the age in their mind? This is a singular event that's going to take place all at once. Jesus will give a prophetic picture of the time leading up to that time, but he's also going to talk about a far future event that lead up to the last days, his return to the earth. His judgment of the people on the earth. And again, this has led many conservative Bible teachers and scholars to conclude that Jesus must have been speaking of a near event and a far event. Imagine if you could turn around and there was a, a crystal window behind you and all of you could see into the mountains of the Front Range. You'll be able to when you walk out the door. When you look west, you'll see the mountains. You'll see the foothills. But will you be able to see the 14ers behind the foothills? No. You can't see them from here. You're going to have to drive east. You're going to have to go past Santa Fe. You're going to have to go almost up to the top of the hill. And when you go to the top of the hill, you can see these majestic peaks peeking over the foothills, which, which you can only see from this perspective. And in order for you to see the majestic peaks that lie just behind the foothills, we're going to have to drive a little bit further into the chapter. We're going to have to distance ourselves so that you can see not just up close, but that you can see far away. And at the end of verse 3, look what it says. And what will be the sign of your coming? That answer is found in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 44, which we're going to be looking at in the weeks ahead. The Bible speaks of a time of unprecedented horror called the Great Tribulation, which will be cut short by the literal, not metaphorical, the literal bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord says it will be sudden and swift in verse 27. Like lightning across the sky. The imagery of lightning comes from Zechariah chapter 9 verses 14 through 17. And if you look back in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is on the Mount of Olives. When he sees the vision of the return of Jesus. And I often have wondered. If whether or not Jesus took his disciples. To the exact place where Zechariah sat and saw his vision of what the future was going to unfold Jesus expected his coming to be obvious visible sorry Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus came back secretly, invisibly in 1914 and is now living in Brooklyn some see his sign of his coming at the end of the age Not as two separate events, but rather two different aspects of a singular event. In the most ancient Greek manuscripts, the two phrases share the common definite article. It says in the original text, the sign, the end. But I believe that this tribulation is going to be preceded by a great rapture of the church. And look what it says at the end of verse three the end of the world and the end of the age. By the way, the word translated age is the Greek word aeon, which speaks not so much of the final end, but rather the end of the age or the end of the epoch or the end of the dispensation. So it's not talking about the utter annihilation of humanity and the end of the planet Earth like the History Channel will lead you to believe. But it's talking about the end of the age and the answer to that question is going to be found in the very next verse all the way to verse 28. The destruction that Jesus talks about will begin with warning. With an increasing deception and apostasy in verses 4 and 5. The rise of false prophets in verse 11. Leading people astray. And so Jesus, in his discussion about the end of the age, prefaces his discussion with, Oh, by the way, there's going to be a lot of people saying a lot of things about what's about to unfold. It's going to be the subject of controversy. And it's going to incorporate a lot of things that just simply are not true. So be warned, he says. The rise of false prophets in Christ, false messiahs leading people astray. He describes a time of anarchy where wars break out in verses 6 through 8. Apathy, the love of many growing cold in verses 12 through 13. A time of unprecedented affliction, verses 9 and 10, as believers are hated, and hunted, and betrayed, and butchered. In the next few weeks, we're going to look at the Lord's great warning, and then we're going to talk about what it means to guard against deception in verse 4. And then Jesus is going to give a series of signs. Number one, false messiahs deceiving many, verse 5. Global violence, verses 6 and 7. Natural disasters, the end of verse 7. And then he says, and this is just the beginning in verse 8. Severe religious persecution, verse 9. A time of terrible apostasy, betrayal, and division in verse 10. The rise and proliferation of false leaders offering a false hope in verse 11. An increase in proliferation of sin, coldness, apathy, indifference in verse 12. And then inspiring stories of faith and perseverance as the saints are going to hold out and hold on in verse 13. And then global evangelism in verse 14. There's an interesting story about a Christian philosopher who engaged in a debate with a Jewish rabbi who was not convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. The Christian philosopher and the rabbi exchanged words over the statements by the ancient Hebrew prophets who predicted the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, whether or not the ancient Hebrew Old Testament texts were authoritative and reliable. It reminded me of a conversation I had not too long ago with, of all people, Dennis Prager, right here on this platform, where we talked about whether or not the Messiah... Coming is the first time around or the second time around? In their discussion, then turn to Jerusalem and the end of time. Do you really think that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, the rabbi asked. Do you really expect your people to be gathered with the Messiah and the patriarchs, he asked. The philosopher said, quote, I and others that are right minded Christians do indeed expect that there will be a thousand years in Jerusalem, the philosopher responded. And then he added, But many who belong to the pure and pious faith and who are truly Christians think otherwise, unquote. You know what's interesting about that conversation? Is when it took place. It didn't take place in the 20th century, it didn't even take place in the 19th century. It took place in the middle of the second century, just two generations after the destruction of the temple. What's interesting about it, the philosopher was named Justin and the rabbi was named Teraphon. What do we learn from that conversation? As early as the middle of the second century, Christians already disagreed about the details of the second coming. When they were having that discussion Jerusalem was being rebuilt but Jews were unable to occupy the city all the Jews could do was hold out hope that one day they might reoccupy the city and what else is interesting about it as early as the middle of the second century Christians were already disagreeing about the details of the second coming but don't let that confuse you don't let it frustrate you Don't let it cause you to throw your hands up in despair. We know that good people disagree about important matters. But do you know what all Christians believe? All orthodox Christians? Every single person who's a Christian, whether you're premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, you may not even know what any of those phrases mean, but we're going to talk about it more in the weeks ahead. Every single Christian believes that Jesus is going to return physically bodily, literally, All Christians believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is literally seated at the right hand of the Father and that he will come back to judge the living and the dead. All Christians believe that Jesus is going to raise the Christian from the dead, return and judge the living and the dead. They may disagree about whether or not there's going to be a resurrection just prior to the the rapture, or this tribulation, or subsequent to it, but all Christians believe that Jesus is going to return, that Jesus will judge all of humanity, that God will physically, bodily, in reality, resurrect people from the dead. Will the return of Jesus be a single event after a time of tribulation, or will Jesus... remove his church before this time called the Great Tribulation? These are some of the questions and answers that we're going to talk about in the weeks ahead. So, what do all Christians believe? Jesus is coming back. What do all Christians believe? Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. What do all Christians believe? The Tribulation is both a current reality and a future reality for Christians. They may disagree on what level Christians might experience or participate in a great tribulation or what's been called the time of Jacob's sorrow. But the return of Jesus will take place. It will happen. We live in a broken world. But do you know what all Christians are expected to do? All Christians are expected to endure patiently. John writes in Revelation 1-9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island which is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know what John says in that simple statement? We are all partners in the kingdom. We all experience tribulation. We all will wait patiently. Patient endurance, by the way, means working together to expand God's kingdom, reveal God's love, proclaim Christ's gospel. Whatever patient endurance means... It must mean that we bring Jesus into the present circumstance, whether a person's suffering or hurt. It seems crazy to state the obvious, but I'm going to. The world, every nation, every person must know what Jesus says about the future. By the way, Every nation, every person is going to hear something about what's going to happen. Some of them are going to accept it, most will reject. And so we have to be very careful from here on in as we begin to talk about the secret things of God. Do you know what we're going to do? We're going to look into the future. And as we look into the future, we're going to have to resist two temptations. To refuse to say what the text does not say. And to absolutely say what the text says. The study of prophecy may be fraught with deceit and danger. No wonder Jesus says, I need to warn you that no one deceives you. Paul will later write, this know also that in the last days perilous times will come when people won't endure sound doctrine. But Jesus reveals these signs for a specific purpose. To prepare his disciples for what lies ahead. To prepare his disciples to endure To keep hope alive, to strengthen faith, and then to make a promise. Remember what I said at the beginning? Assuredly, I say to you, when Jesus makes a promise and he goes, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. It's going to happen. I guarantee it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we, we do pray that you'll prepare us for what lies ahead. That you'll prepare us to think carefully. That you'll prepare us to be patient. That you'll prepare us to endure. That you'll prepare us to minister to each other. And to strengthen one another. In this mutual commitment that we have to Jesus. And so, Lord, again, we pray that you will keep us in your love in Jesus' name. And all the saints said, let's stand.